Well, it's the first Sunday of the year, but you've had seven days in this new year to begin to see whether those New Year's resolutions you set are actually going to hold. I I hope they do, but if you're like most Americans, uh, they'll last a few more weeks. Uh, In fact, a recent report from U.S. News & World Report um, indicated that over 80% of American New Year's resolutions fail by the second week of February. So you've got a few more weeks. Apparently, if you can make it past Valentine's Day, you'll be okay. But that's part of our culture and the way that we do New Year's, isn't it? It's a time of reflection. It's a time to set personal goals. It's a time to think about personal growth. And and we often set resolutions. Often resolutions center around a handful of things like better time management, managing our, our stress and our finances better. And all those are very, very good things. But there's something much bigger and better that New Year's provides us an opportunity to reflect on. You know, in fact, the people of Israel had a time of resolution, a time of renewal and reflection, but it didn't center on New Year's, it centered around the festival calendar, the the feast calendar that we find in the Hebrew Scriptures. Three times a year, the people of Israel would come together, they would pilgrim to the city of Jerusalem for the feast of Pentecost, of uh, Passover and Tabernacles. And as they did that, they would climb the 2,700 feet to Mount Zion, and they would gather together, and they would set their mind on the Lord. And they'd be renewed as they fixed their mind on ultimate reality, on their covenant God. And as they did this year by year, there was actually a collection of psalms that were gathered together that served as uh, a, a an opportunity to read these psalms and to reflect on the living God. And they're given to us in our canonized book, the Psalter. We find them in Psalms 120 through Psalm 135. These 16 psalms that you'll find are called Songs of Ascent. That was, as the pilgrims would climb Mount Zion to get to Jerusalem, they would sing songs like this as they fixed their mind on the Lord and renewed their soul by feasting on Him. So I think it's appropriate on a first Sunday of the year as we're going to take the Lord's table together to reflect on the truth that is given to us in Psalm 121. There's one big cornerstone truth that's in this psalm that I'd like to put before you to renew our souls today. And you can see that beginning just in the first couple of verses. If you notice Psalm 121 verse 1, the psalmist writes, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So the psalmist is looking at the hills, either going to Jerusalem to worship, or perhaps what fits this song even better is that he's coming from the temple. He's worshipped in the temple, he's remembered his Lord, and now he's going to go back to real life, as it were. He's leaving the temple and he's going to go from Jerusalem back to wherever he came from to continue living his day-to-day life. And as he looks in the hills, his mind begins to be filled with less than pleasant thoughts. Why do I say that? Well, frequently in Scripture, the hills are indicative of the things you would find there, and they weren't pleasant. For example, the hills served as cover for robbers who would do violence to you and steal from you. And you see this all over Scripture, but for example, in Luke chapter 10, where you find Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, that story begins by a man who goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and on the way he encounters robbers who beat him and strip him and leave him for dead. So as the psalmist is looking to the hills, he may well be thinking, yeah, I've just worshipped the Lord, but now I'm going to back back into the real world where there's danger. Who's going to be my help there? But you know, he could also be thinking of another 
less than pleasant reality that the hill signified, and that is the pagan worship that took place in the hills. The hill served as a platform upon which uh, other people groups and the Jews themselves would worship false gods and engage in all kinds of immoral practices. And so you see texts all over the book of Jeremiah that speak of the hills as the platform for performing pagan worship. And so the psalmist might be turning his back on Jerusalem and going back home and looking at the hills and saying there's danger and there's false worship and I've got to live in this real world. And as I go back to real life, where's my help going to come from? And you see that he answers his own question in verse 2 when he says, My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He reminds himself that my help is going to come from the Lord. And he uses this word, Yahweh. You see it in all caps, all caps indicative of the Hebrew word Yahweh, God's covenant-keeping name. He's reminding himself that my God is the God who's pledged a covenant to his people, even to me, to guide me, protect me, to bless me, and I can bank on it. As I go back into the world, this God will be my helper. And he's able to keep this covenant that he's made with me because he's the maker of heaven and earth. And as he says that, the God who made heaven and earth, know that he's not primarily taking a stand on an evolution creation debate. Primarily, he's reminding himself that the God who protects me is the God who has absolute sovereignty. This God controls the world. He deals with all the world's problems. Surely he can deal with mine. And so the first thing this psalmist sets before his eyes as he goes back into his, his world is he reminds himself that the God who helps me, the God who keeps me, is a covenant-keeping God who's absolutely sovereign over the whole world. And you know, as we walk through the rest of the psalm, he just continues to dialogue with himself about this truth. You notice, and if you get to verse 3, you have this shift from first person to second person. Notice verse 3, it says, He won't let your foot be moved. What's happened? How did we go from I to you? What's going on here? Are there two people? It's possible that this was intended to be a song that would be sung between groups of people, singing back and forth to one another. It's possible, but probably more likely is this is one of those interpersonal dialogue psalms. You know, as you see this in psalms like Psalm 42, where the psalmist says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. He's grabbing hold of himself and he's reminding himself of the things that he knows to be true. That's probably what's going on here. Is the psalmist has just had this apex experience of worship And now he's going to go back into real life. And as he does that, and he looks around and he considers, this is going to be hard. There's going to be danger. There's going to be temptation. How am I going to do this? He grabs hold of himself and he reminds himself of what he knows to be true so he can live a life that corresponds to that. So I want to just walk through the rest of this psalm and I want you to encourage you to dialogue with yourself as you go into this new year. Would you grab hold of your own heart and would you say, soul, this is what you know to be true. Live in light of these things. And the rest of the psalm, what we see is we see three truths about the Lord's care for you to refresh your soul. Three truths about God's care for you to refresh your soul. The first thing I want you to see as we go through the rest of the psalm is that the Lord keeps you constantly. The Lord keeps you constantly. You see that in verses 3 and 4. So notice verse 3. Psalmist writes, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He says first, very simply, He won't let your foot slip. And how does He know that? Because the God who keeps you won't sleep. He's not going to slumber. He won't close His eyes on you. And as He walks through the rest of this, because verses 3 and 4 are just one continuous thought, He says, how do I know that God's not going to sleep on me? Because He doesn't sleep on Israel. 
You see what he's doing? Is he's making an argument from the greater to the lesser. He's saying the God who keeps the whole nation Israel safe will definitely keep you safe. And you know what he's probably doing is he's remembering time past. You know, this is a man who'd been educated in the history of his people, and he knows the covenants, the promises that God had made to his people, and he can trace back through history, and he can see that God never let one of his words hit the ground, that he always fulfilled his promises to his people. And as he surveys in the past that God has always kept his word, he can look at his life and the road that marks, that's marked ahead of him, and he can say, if God's always kept his word in the past, even to an entire people, then surely he can heap his promises to me. God's not going to let your foot slip because he'll never sleep on you. You know, that's a good promise, isn't it? In a in a world in which we live with so many oxymorons, where we at the same time need more caffeine and more sleeping medication than we've ever needed before, we live in a crazy world where teenagers are far more likely to hurt themselves than they are to hurt other people. We live in a world filled with anxiety and stresses galore, where people's number one New Year's resolution is always to reduce stress. You know, it's good to cast your anchor in this truth that the Lord will not let your foot slip because He will not sleep on you. You know, it's, it's written that the Greek general Alexander the Great was asked, how can you sleep? I mean, of all people, you're the most wanted man in the entire world. Everyone wants to kill you. And yet you sleep soundly every night. How is it that you sleep? And he says, very simple. It's because my bodyguards don't. Look, how much more the God of the universe, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you are a believer in Him, He doesn't sleep. He'll keep you constantly. You know, there's another thing in this text that you need to see. It's that the Lord doesn't just keep you constantly, but He keeps you infallibly. Infallibly. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 5. We find this. It says, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. So we find this image here that the Lord is your shade that is probably not particularly enamoring to a 2017 Westerner, and yet, that's a pretty big deal if you live in the ancient Near East. And what it's saying is that God is going to protect you. He's going to protect you, and it says He's your shade on your right hand, which is just another image to say that He's near, He's close, He's not far. When you shout, He will be there. And we see this theme all through the Scripture, especially in the Psalms, the famous Psalm 46 God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of need. That's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. But you know, we find in verse 6 another set of images, but they're even, I think, perhaps more distant to us in 2018. Is that what year it is? Man, you guys need to stop me when I do those things. Verse 6 says, The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Well, that first half, I think, makes pretty good sense. Maybe. Uh, the sun should not strike you by day. I mean, we just said the ancient Near East is a different kind of geographical world, a world in which heat stroke is a very real threat. Okay, so perhaps God's going to keep me from getting too sunburned. Uh, but the second half doesn't seem to make sense at first glance. It says he'll keep the sun should not strike you by day, and the moon won't strike you by night. So what is that talking about? The moon won't strike you by night. Uh, well, there's a possibility here. Uh, in the ancient world, it was actually believed by a number of people that exposure to the moon's rays could affect your mental stability. It could make you crazy. In fact, that's why we have words like lunacy and lunatic. They come from the Latin word luna, which means moon. Exposure to the moon's rays could make you crazy. 
So is that what he's talking about? In fact, a number of commentators that I read, I was, I was disappointed to find, think that the Scripture is adopting a false ancient mindset in order to communicate truth. Now, maybe it's because I've just been exposed to too many of the moon's rays, but that doesn't make sense. There's a much better explanation for this verse, and it's, you'll find it if you just keep reading the rest of the verses. All the psalmist is doing is he's using a typical rhetorical device that's employed throughout the scriptures, especially in the psalms called a merism, where he uses two extreme ends, two opposites, in order to signify completion. We see this everywhere in scripture from the very first psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, not his law. He meditates day and night. And that's not talking about morning and evening quiet time. So that's a really good thing to do. It's talking about completion. The blessed man is the man who's always meditating on God's word. It's a merism. Two extremes to signify completion. That's what he's saying here, is that the God who's your protector, who's with you, will protect you completely, entirely, infallibly. Nothing's going to get through. So the Lord is your protector keeper and he'll keep you constantly he won't sleep he'll keep you infallibly nothing will get through his protection but there's a third truth here and that is that the lord keeps you entirely entirely so look at verse 7 we find this in verse 7 the lord will keep you from all evil he will keep your life the lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore and that is a big verse let me just walk through this with you briefly. Verse 7 says, The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Now, there are He's going to keep you entirely. Now, the particular words that he uses in this verse are really interesting. He says, The Lord will keep you from all evil. What does that mean? The particular word he uses is this Hebrew word, ra. Can you say that? Ra. How many of you didn't do it? Like, I still work with high school students, so you're just going to have to roll with some of these things. Ra. Can you say that? Ra. Beautiful. What does that mean? It's a very broad word that could be used for something that's morally wicked, morally evil, but it's not restricted to that. It's just anything that opposes the good. So it could be applied to any kind of hurt, disaster that could befall a person. And this text says that the Lord is going to keep you from all of it, from anything that's opposed to the good. But then it extends the Lord's care to your life, and it uses the word nephesh, which is really just the throat. That, and this word gets extended to speak of the breath and the desire for breath, desire for life, and the living creature. So really it just means the whole person. If you're a living creature, if you're a living person, God's going to protect the living part of you. That is all of you. So we have this verse where God's going to keep your whole person from all that opposes the good. Wow! That's kind of a hard promise to believe, isn't it? We'll come back to that in a second. But I want to look at verse 8 here. Verse 8 says, The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And you know, there's only two ways you can go. You can go out and you can go in. And it's another merism. This is just, God's going to keep you completely in everywhere you go and everything that you do. And not only that, but He's going to keep you for all time from this time forth and forevermore. And I don't know which of those is better. The reality that if you're in Christ, God is keeping you right now. 
or that if you're in Christ, He's going to keep you forever and there's no end to His keeping power over your life. The Lord will keep you entirely, infallibly, and constantly. This is a good promise. This is a good psalm to fix your mind on as you begin a new year. But I think as you look at this psalm and you walk through the truths that you find in it, I think you ought to start asking some hard questions that probably you've already begun to ask. So let me maybe ask one of them. I think it would go something like this. So is this saying that if you are in the Lord, if you know the Lord, that nothing bad is ever going to happen to you? And that's what this says. You just told me, Ryan, that, that the Lord's going to keep me from all that opposes the good in this broad, comprehensive sense. So what on earth does that mean? How do you understand a promise like that in Scripture? Well, obviously, the first thing that you would need to do is back up and say, what does the rest of the Bible have to say about that? Maybe you could pose a question something like this. What would other characters say about that? What would Paul say about that? If you go to the Old Testament, you could say, what would Joseph in the book of Genesis say about that? You find his story, the youngest of Jacob's uh, sons, he's disliked by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery in Egypt. Then as he's working in a man named Potiphar's house, he does good, not wrong, but he's falsely accused and then thrown into prison for only doing what was right. As he's going through that, as he's sold into slavery, is he singing, the Lord's keeping me from all evil. When he's tossed into a prison cell for doing what was right, is he saying, the Lord's keeping my life comprehensively. How do you reckon verses like this with reality of life? Well, in fact, if you ask the question to Joseph, how do we understand texts like this, I think he would answer it himself. But he probably couldn't answer it until his life came full circle. The Lord restored him and used him to save his entire family. And we find at the end of his story in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, that he answers our question, does this mean that nothing bad will ever happen with this? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, for the salvation of many people. In other words, the way that you need to interpret texts like this is you need to interpret texts like that through the bigger lens of promises in Scripture, like God is working all things together for good for those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose, even the bad things allowed in your life. Now I said before that that's a really amazing, hard-to-believe promise, isn't it? That God is going to protect you from all ultimate evil and He's going to work even the bad things in your life for your ultimate good. That's a hard promise to believe sometimes. But you know, it's only promises that are hard to believe that are really worth your attention. If I promised you at the end of this sermon, and this sermon will come to an end, I promise, and when it does... I will give you a quarter. <laughs> you just roll right over that. You'd forget that even happened. That's not worth your time and attention. But if I make you some big, incredible promise that's so big you can't possibly believe it, like I'll give you two dollars. <laughs> wow! Do you understand what I'm saying? It's only the promises that are so big that it's hard to even believe that are really worth your time. And that's the kind of promises God gives you. He gives you promises like He will work everything in your life together for good. And you know that He can do that if you just remember who God is. The God who is, who is making these promises is the God who made the world. 
even in the midst of the kinds of evil that, 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 encom- that befalls a person in their life, you can know He will work it all together for good because of who He is. For example, I work with students, and this is obviously not the kind of a thing that's restricted only to the life of a teenager, but one of the most frequent questions that students will ask me is, how can God be good when there's all this bad stuff in the world? And depending on what kind of experience a person might have had as they ask that question, sometimes there can be a lot of indignation, a lot of frustration, anger, because they say they hear that there's this good God, but they also see that there's bad stuff in the world. Look, as soon as you get mad at God for there being bad stuff in the world, you also have to at the same time recognize that if God is big enough for you to be mad at Him for things that have gone wrong, then He's also big enough to have a morally sufficient reason for everything that happens in the world. Did you get that? If God's big enough for you to be mad at Him for things that have gone wrong, then He's also big enough to have a morally sufficient reason for what's gone wrong. And He's not required to give it to you. We see this even in a small level with our children, don't we? I mean, I have very, very small children, and so they don't understand a whole lot. They understand cookies and ice cream, but not much beyond that. So there's a, most things in their life that I do to them, they don't understand. So for example, I take them to get a shot at the doctor's office. Uh, you, know, you know how that goes. The doctor just like kind of sweetens them up, gives them a lollipop or something, and you know, my daughter's sitting on the table, and she's just loving life. I love the doctor. It's so good. Until the needle comes in. And then there's this pause, and then eyes swell up like, Dad, you betrayed me. How could you do this to me? And then the yell comes out, and, and they're screaming, and there's gnashing of teeth and weeping. Whew. And she's convinced that I have purposed, purposed her life for evil. Now, look, that's not a perfect analogy for the kinds of evils that we encounter in life, because so much of the evil we encounter is not analogous to a shot. It's something much worse. And yet... The analogy is true at this point that God really is a father. He really is a father who loves his children and is working in his infinite wisdom and power to bring everything in their life together for their ultimate good, even when it doesn't make sense. And in the times that it doesn't make sense, where we need to go is we need to go directly to the cross where God showed that He can take the greatest evil in the world, the crucifixion of His only begotten Son, and turn it for the greatest good, for the salvation of His people. And He also showed that that question, why is there evil and suffering in the world, has an answer, but it's definitely not God doesn't care. God proved that He does care when He entered this world and He suffered, in fact, more than we ever will in the person of His Son when He bore the infinite wrath that sin deserves. We go straight to the cross when we, when we ask questions like, how can promises like, I'll work everything together for your good be true? We go straight to the cross and view life with the cross in the foreground and eternity in the background. And we know that if God is our Father then he will keep his word. Now, if that's kind of what the big picture scripture says about how to look at Psalms like Psalm 121, then I think we can come back to Psalm 121 and just make a couple more observations to kind of close out our thoughts on this text. Because there are, in fact, just a couple things in here that point us in this direction that we 
kind of glanced over. So for example, if you'd come back to Psalm 121, I just want to note two things. If you, number one, if you go to verse 3, you'll notice this little phrase, he will not let your foot be moved, that we kind of glanced over because at first it looks very simple. He won't let your foot be moved. You know, he won't let you slip is the idea here. Like you, you may have had this happen in the last couple of weeks as it's been very, very cold. You're walking along and you hit some black ice and there you go. And God won't let that happen in your life. And yet, you know, as you look at that text, as you read those word combat that excuse me if you look at that combination of words through the rest of the Hebrew Bible what you'll find is that every time a metaphor like excuse me a phrase like that is employed it's never used for physical falling it's always used metaphorically to speak of something happening in your life specifically God won't let you fall into divine judgment and he won't let you fall into your sin so let me just show you for example if you flip over to Psalm 73 just for a moment, flip to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is this famous Psalm of Asaph where he recalls an incident in his life where he was looking at the life of the ungodly and seeing that they were enjoying life. He speaks of their bodies being sleek and fat, which is weird to me, but it just meant that they looked good. And life was going really, really well for them, and his life was really hard. And he started to wonder, is God even there? Their life looks so much better. And he says at the beginning of the psalm, Psalm 73, verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel for those who are pure in heart, but for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He recalls this time in his life when he almost left the Lord because he saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says that experience was like my feet nearly slipping. That's the kind of idea that this, this phrase describes. Leaving the Lord, falling into your sin. And of course, as you go through Psalm 73, what you find is the Lord renewed him, restored him, he recovered. So you come down to verse um, 21, he says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant like a beast towards you. That's how I was behaving. I was behaving like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with me. You hold my right hand. God was holding him by his right hand so that even as he was starting to stray from the Lord, God was holding him and would bring him back. And now he can say, I'm in a position where whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In other words, God brought him back and his feet didn't slip. But I also just want to note one other thing in this text before we leave Psalm 73, is that one of the things that he saw as he recovered from this state of envying the wicked is in verse 18. In fact, if you go back up to verse 17, he had this, this recovery experience as he went into the sanctuary of God and then discerned the end of the wicked. And what is the end of the wicked? The ungodly who don't know the true God? Verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. In other words, when your feet slip, where does that end in Scripture? That's a figure of speech to speak of falling into divine judgment. Falling into divine judgment. And that's the end of the ungodly apart from the Lord. So you go back to Psalm 121. I just want to show you one other text in Scripture where we find this phrase of feet slipping. It's in Deuteronomy in chapter 32 and verse 35. It's this famous text that's used by Jonathan Edwards in his sermon 
sinners in the hands of an angry God, which is obviously a gospel sermon about the Lord saving His people from the wrath that we rightly deserve. And the text that He launches that sermon for is this text in Deuteronomy 32, where the Lord says, Vengeance is mine in recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. This is a phrase, your feet slipping. This is not just talking about having a bad day at work. I mean, that, that stinks. But this is talking about something much more significant. It's talking about falling away from the Lord and into judgment. And what we find in Psalm 121 is this promise that the Lord who keeps you will not let you slip into judgment. He won't let you slip into judgment. God will infallibly keep His people from falling into ruin. He will even pursue them when they stray away from Him. We find this all over Scripture, in fact, and I think just it's summarized so nicely in the New Testament in Jude chapter 24 with texts like this. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. That's another good promise, isn't it? You know, if it depended on you, you couldn't hold yourself. You could not keep yourself. I'm not even talking about keeping yourself in your job, keeping yourself in your family. I'm talking about keeping your soul. Ultimately, we're talking about keeping your soul. And ultimately, if it were dependent on you, you would lose it. You would stray away. But do you know the Lord will not let you get away from Him. He holds your right hand. He guides you with His counsel and He will receive you into glory. He's your keeper. He will infallibly keep you because the Father who is greater than all holds you in His hand. But you know, there's one other observation that we want to see in this text in order to understand how to apply it to our lives as we look towards a new year. Not only does the Lord keep you from falling into judgment, but if you just look at the big picture of this psalm, there's two key words that occur over and over and over. Did you catch them as I read it? Maybe I'll just read it one more time. It's, I think you'll see what they are. Verse 1, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. Behold, he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So you've got these two recurrences of the Lord and Keeper over and over and over and over and over. And that's a theme throughout Scripture. In fact, usually, these two words occur together when the Lord is commanding His people to keep His covenant. But underlying that frequent theme is these incredible passages where the Lord says, what enables you to keep My covenant is that I'm in fact keeping you. I'm in fact keeping you. You know, as the psalmist composes a psalm and he's talking about the Lord being his keeper, it's really fitting that he uses the covenant name for God. Because as he's doing that, he's recalling that the God who's going to keep me is going to keep me because he made a covenant to do so. And probably he would have texts like Genesis chapter 15 in his mind, the story where God, when he made a covenant with Abraham, tells Abraham to bring an animal 
and they cut it in half and separate the two sides. A typical ancient Near Eastern treaty where two people would walk through the two sides of an animal saying, if one of us breaks this covenant, let what has happened to this animal happen to us. So Abraham's anticipating that he's going to be required to walk through this animal and pledge that he'll be faithful to God's covenant. And instead, God leaves him there on the sidelines and God himself and God alone walks through the pieces of the animal symbolizing, I will keep this covenant to bless my people, to expand your offspring, Abraham, to make your name great and through you to bless all the families of the earth, even at the cost of my own life. And in fact, that's what God has done 2,000 years ago in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. On the cross, Christ was split open in order to solidify a new covenant wherein everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, God's Son, is reconciled to God and will never, ever, ever be taken away because God has already done the greater work of dying for His people. In other words, maybe we could just summarize what Psalm 121 is talking about by just kind of recalling what just happened a few weeks ago in this crazy, weird thing that we call Christmas, where we wake up in the morning and, I don't know how your family does it, maybe you do Noche Buena like my wife's family does, and we do Christmas Eve midnight gifts. It's pretty awesome, actually. Probably entails some kind of gift giving. And I just want you to imagine just for a moment that a father has a beloved son and this beloved child of his, he goes out ahead of time before the child even knows that he has a desire for a Christmas present. Yeah, right, like that could happen. But just suppose this kid doesn't yet know that he has this incredible desire for the most amazing new bicycle that has ever been created. And the dad goes out and he purchases his bike at great expense. And he stashes it away secretly at home. And Christmas Day comes and all the presents are brought forth. Do you think if that father has gone through such lengths to go purchase that present that he will not give it to his kid? Of course he will. What texts like this are saying is that God has already purchased the gift of salvation, of keeping your soul, of securing you. He gave His Son... And he who delivered up his son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? God gave his son to save his people from their sins. He will do it. He will secure you. He will keep you. He's already purchased the gift. He won't forget to give it to you. And that's not just talking about your conversion, where you got a foretaste of the glory that is yours in Christ Jesus. And Christ wasn't slain, He didn't bear the wrath of God just to give you a momentary taste for a few days on earth. He did that so that you'd be with Him where He is to see His glory. So that you'd be at His right hand and in His presence with pleasure forevermore. That's why the Son of God was crucified, so the Lord could give that to you. And if the Lord gave His Son He will keep you to give you that gift. So as we walk through this psalm, I hope that you could see it being sung from the lips of Jesus, who is ultimately our Lord. Lord, the Lord is your keeper. He's your shade on your right hand. 
The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. In this ultimate sense, He will keep your life. From this time forth and forevermore. But maybe as we close, just notice this one little line. He'll keep your going out and your coming in, not your sitting down. In other words, there's going to come a time when you will bask in His presence unmitigated and enjoy the fullness of the joy that's at His right hand, but not yet. Until that time comes, He has a work for you to do. And until it's done, He will infallibly keep you and accomplish all His purposes through you and then bring you home. But He'll keep you until that day, but until that day comes, get going get going. Lord, we thank you that you will keep us so that we know that all of our labor is not in vain. So we ask as we reflect on this new year that you would give us grace to look to the cross where you purchased our souls and to rejoice with joy in anticipation of the day when we will see you face to face and that you would infuse us with grace and with courage to live a life that magnifies Christ with the short breath that you give us. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.